Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is March 2021. This month we're going to be doing Anne Radcliffe. I don't know if we're going to have any guests to talk about the originator of the, what I like to call the Scooby-Doo ending, and gothic literature as we know it, and motherfucking Radcliffe. All right. Uh, except for that intro, uh, the rest of this should be family-friendly, and I hope you enjoy it. Remember, Black Clock Audio Tales, uh, Radio Free Oleander. You can also check out Articulate Warbling from time to time. Recording by Red Abras. The Mysteries of Udolfo by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 3. Chapter 1. I will advise you where to plant yourselves. Acquaint you with the perfect spy of the time. The moment on it, for it must be done tonight. Macbeth. Emily was somewhat surprised on the following day to find that Annette had heard of Madame Montoni's confinement in the chamber over the portal, as well as of her proposed visit there on the approaching night. That the circumstance which Bernardine had so solemnly enjoined her to conceal, he had himself told to so indiscreet an hearer as Annette, appeared very improbable though he had now charged her with a message concerning the intended interview. He requested that Emily would meet him, unattended, on the terrace at a little after midnight, when he himself would lead her to the place he had promised, a proposal from which she immediately shrunk, for a thousand vague fears darted athwart her mind, such as had tormented her on the preceding night, and which she neither knew how to trust or to dismiss. It frequently occurred to her that Bernardine might have deceived her, concerning Madame Montoni, whose murder perhaps he really was, and that he had deceived her by order of Montoni, the more easily to draw her into some of the desperate designs of the latter. The terrible suspicion that Madame Montoni no longer lived thus came, accompanied by one not less dreadful for herself unless the crime by which the aunt had suffered was instigated merely by resentment, unconnected with profit, a motive upon which Montoni did not appear very likely to act, its object must be unattained till the niece was also dead, to whom Montoni knew that his wife's estates must descend. Emily remembered the words which had informed her that the contested estates in France would devolve to her if Madame Montoni died, without consigning them to her husband, and the former obstinate perseverance of her aunt made it too probable that she had, to the last, withheld them. At this instant, recollecting Bernardine's manner on the preceding night, she now believed what she had then fancied, that it expressed malignant triumph. She shuddered at the recollection, which confirmed her fears, and determined not to meet him on the terrace. Soon after, she was inclined to consider these suspicions as the extravagant exaggerations of a timid and harassed mind, and could not believe Montoni liable to such preposterous depravity as that of destroying, from one motive, his wife and her niece. She blamed herself for suffering her romantic imagination to carry her so far beyond the bounds of probability, and determined to endeavour to check its rapid flights, lest they should sometimes extend it to madness. 
Still, however, she shrunk from the thought of meeting Bernadine on the terrace at midnight, and still the wish to be relieved from this terrible suspense concerning her aunt, to see her and to soothe her sufferings made her hesitate what to do. Yet how is it possible, Annette, I can pass to the terrace at that hour? said she, recollecting herself. The sentinels will stop me, and Signor Montini will hear of the affair. Oh, ma'amselle, that is well thought of, replied Annette. That is what Bernardine told me about. He gave me this key and bade me say it unlocks the door at the end of the vaulted gallery that opens near the end of the east rampart, so that you need not pass any of the men on watch. He bade me say, too, that his reason for requesting you to come to the terrace was because he could take you to the place you want to go to without opening the great doors of the hall which grate so heavily. Emily's spirits were somewhat calmed by this explanation which seemed to be honestly given to Annette. But why did he desire I would come alone, Annette? said she. Why, that was what I asked him myself, ma'amselle. Says I, why is my young lady to come alone? Surely I may come with her. What harm can I do? But he said, No, no, I tell you not, in his gruff way. Nay, says I, I have been trusted in as great affairs as this, I warrant, and it's a hard matter if I can't keep a secret now. Still, he would say nothing but, No, no, no. Well, says I, if you will only trust me, I'll tell you a great secret that was told to me a month ago, and I have never opened my lips about it yet, so you need not be afraid of telling me. But all would not do. Then, mademoiselle, I went so far as to offer him a beautiful new sequin that Ludovico gave me for a keepsake, and I would not have parted with it for all St. Marco's place. But even that would not do. Now, what can be the reason of this? But I know, you know, ma'am, who you are going to see. Pray, did Bernardine tell you this? He? No, mademoiselle, that he did not. Emily inquired who did. But Annette showed that she could keep a secret. During the remainder of the day, Emily's mind was agitated with doubts and fears and contrary determinations on the subject of meeting this Bernardine on the rampart and submitting herself to his guidance she scarcely knew whither. Pity for her aunt and anxiety for herself alternately swayed her determination, and night came before she had decided upon her conduct. She heard the castle clock strike eleven, twelve, and yet her mind wavered. The time, however, was now come when she could hesitate no longer, and then the interest she felt for her aunt overcame other considerations and, bidding Annette follow her to the outer door of the vaulted gallery and there await her return, she descended from her chamber. The castle was perfectly still, and the great hall, where so lately she had witnessed a scene of dreadful contention, now returned only the whispering footsteps of the two solitary figures gliding fearfully between the pillars, and gleamed only to the feeble lamp they carried. Emily, deceived by the long shadows of the pillars and by the catching lights between, often stopped, imagining she saw some person moving in the distant obscurity of the perspective. And as she passed these pillars, she feared to turn her eyes toward them, 
almost expecting to see a figure start out from behind their broad shaft. She reached, however, the vaulted gallery without interruption but unclosed its outer door with a trembling hand and charging Annette not to quit it and to keep it a little open that she might be heard if she called, she delivered to her the lamp, which she did not dare to take herself because of the men on watch, and alone stepped out upon the dark terrace. Everything was so still that she feared lest her own light steps should be heard by the distant sentinels, and she walked cautiously towards the spot where she had before met Bernadine, listening for a sound, and looking onward through the gloom in search of him. At length she was startled by a deep voice that spoke near her, and she paused uncertain whether it was his, till it spoke again, and she then recognized the hollow tones of Bernadine, who had been punctual to the moment and was at the appointed place, resting on the rampart wall. After chiding her for not coming sooner and saying that he had been waiting nearly half an hour, he desired Emily, who had made no reply, to follow him to the door, through which he had entered the terrace. While he unlocked it, she looked back to that she had left, and observing the rays of the lamp stream through a small opening, was certain that Annette was still there. But her remote situation could little befriend Emily, after she had quitted the terrace and when Bernadine unclosed the gate, the dismal aspect of the passage beyond, shewn by a torch burning on the pavement, made her shrink from following him alone, and she refused to go, unless Annette might accompany her. This, however, Bernadine absolutely refused to permit mingling at the same time with his refusal such artful circumstances to heighten the pity and curiosity of Emily towards her aunt that she at length consented to follow him alone to the portal. He then took up the torch and led her along the passage, at the extremity of which he unlocked another door, whence they descended a few steps into a chapel, which, as Bernadine held up the torch to light her, Emily observed to be in ruins, and she immediately recollected a former conversation of Annette concerning it with very unpleasant emotions. She looked fearfully on the almost roofless walls, green with damps, and on the gothic points of the windows where the ivy and the briony had long supplied the place of glass and ran mantling among the broken capitals of some columns that had once supported the roof. Bernadine stumbled over the broken pavement, and his voice, as he uttered a sudden oath, was returned in hollow echoes that made it more terrific. Emily's heart sunk, but she still followed him, and he turned out of what had been the principal aisle of the chapel. Down these steps, lady, said Bernadine, as he descended a flight, which appeared to lead into the vaults. But Emily paused on the top and demanded in a tremulous tone whither he was conducting her. To the portal, said Bernadine. Cannot we go through the chapel to the portal, said Emily. No, Signora, that leads to the inner court, which I don't choose to unlock. This way, and we shall reach the outer court presently. Emily still hesitated, fearing not only to go on, but since she had gone thus far, to irritate Bernadine by refusing to go further. Come, lady, said the man, who had nearly reached the bottom of the flight. Make a little haste, I cannot wait here all night. 
whither do these steps lead? said Emily, yet pausing. To the portal, repeated Bernadine in an angry tone. I will wait no longer. As he said this, he moved on with the light, and Emily, fearing to provoke him by further delay, reluctantly followed. From the steps, they proceeded through a passage adjoining the walls, the walls of which were dropping with unwholesome dews, and the vapors that crept along the ground made the torch burn so dimly that Emily expected every moment to see it extinguished, and Bernardine could scarcely find his way. As they advanced, these vapors thickened, and Bernardine, believing the torch was expiring, stopped for a moment to trim it. As he then rested against a pair of iron gates that opened from the passage, Emily saw by uncertain flashes of light the vaults beyond, and near her heaps of earth that seemed to surround an open grave. Such an object in such a scene would at any time have disturbed her, but now she was shocked by an instantaneous presentiment that this was the grave of her unfortunate aunt and that the treacherous Bernardine was leading herself to destruction. The obscure and terrible place to which he had conducted her seemed to justify the thought. It was a place suited for murder, a receptacle for the dead, where a deed of horror might be committed and no vestige appeared to proclaim it. Emily was so overwhelmed with terror that for a moment she was unable to determine what conduct to pursue. She then considered that it would be vain to attempt an escape from Bernadine by flight, since the length and the intricacy of the way she had passed would soon enable him to overtake her, who was unacquainted with turnings and whose feebleness would not suffer her to run long with swiftness. She feared equally to irritate him by a disclosure of her suspicions, which a refusal to accompany him further certainly would do and since she was already as much in his power as it was possible she could be, if she proceeded, she at length determined to suppress, as far as she could, the appearance of apprehension, and to follow silently whither he designed to lead her. Pale with horror and anxiety, she now waited till Bernadine had trimmed the torch, and as her sight glanced again upon the grave, she could not forbear inquiring for whom it was prepared. He took his eyes from the torch and fixed them upon her face without speaking. She faintly repeated the question, but the man, shaking the torch, passed on, and she followed, trembling, to a second flight of steps, having ascended which a door delivered them into the first court of the castle. As they crossed it, the light shewed the high black walls around them fringed with long grass and dank weeds that found a scanty soil among the mouldering stones, the heavy buttresses, with here and there between them a narrow gate that admitted a freer circulation of air to the court, the massy iron gates that led to the castle whose clustering turrets appeared above and opposite the huge towers and arc of the portal itself. In this scene, the large uncouth person of Bernadine bearing the torch, formed a characteristic figure. This Bernadine was wrapped in a long, dark cloak, which scarcely allowed the kind of half-boots or sandals that were laced upon his legs to appear, and shewed only the point of a broad sword, which he usually wore, 
slung in a belt across his shoulders. On his head was a heavy flat velvet cap, somewhat resembling a turban, in which was a short feather. The visage beneath it showed strong features and a countenance furrowed with the lines of cunning and darkened by habitual discontent. The view of the court, however, reanimated Emily, who, as she crossed silently towards the portal, began to hope that her own fears and not the treachery of Bernadine had deceived her. She looked anxiously up at the first casement that appeared above the lofty arch of the portcullis, but it was dark, and she inquired whether it belonged to the chamber where Madame Montoni was confined. Emily spoke low, and Bernadine perhaps did not hear her question, for he returned no answer, and they soon after entered the postern door of the gateway which brought them to the foot of a narrow staircase that wound up one of the towers. Up this staircase the Signora lies, said Bernadine. Lies? repeated Emily faintly as she began to ascend. She lies in the upper chamber, said Bernadine. As they passed up, the wind which poured through the narrow cavities in the wall made the torch flare and it threw a stronger gleam upon the grim and sallow countenance of Bernadine and discovered more fully the desolation of the place, the rough stone walls, the spiral stairs black with age and a suit of ancient armor with an iron visor that hung upon the walls and appeared a trophy of some former victory. Having reached a landing place, you may wait here, lady, said he, applying a key to the door of a chamber, while I go up and tell the signora you are coming. That ceremony is unnecessary, replied Emily. My aunt will rejoice to see me. I am not so sure of that, said Bernadine, pointing to the room he had opened. Come in here, lady, while I step up. Emily, surprised and somewhat shocked, did not dare to oppose him further, but as he was turning away with the torch, desired he would not leave her in darkness. He looked around, and observing a tripod lamp that stood on the stairs, lighted and gave it to Emily, who stepped forward into a large old chamber, and he closed the door. As she listened anxiously to his departing steps, she thought he descended instead of ascending the stairs, but the gusts of wind that whistled round the portal would not allow her to hear distinctly any other sound. Still, however, she listened, and perceiving no step in the room above where he had affirmed Madame Montoni to be, her anxiety increased, though she considered that the thickness of the floor in this strong building might prevent any sound reaching her from the upper chamber. The next moment, in a pause of the wind, she distinguished Bernardine's step descending to the court, and then thought she heard his voice, but the rising gust again overcoming other sounds, Emily, to be certain on this point, moved softly to the door, which, on attempting to open it, she discovered was fastened. All the horrid apprehensions that had lately assailed her returned at this instant with redoubled force, and no longer appeared like the exaggerations of a timid spirit, but seemed to have been sent to warn her of her fate. She now did not doubt that Madame Montoni had been murdered, perhaps in this very chamber, or that she herself was brought hither for the same purpose. 
The countenance, the manners, and the recollected words of Bernardine, when he had spoken of her aunt, confirmed her worst fears. For some moments she was incapable of considering of any means by which she might attempt an escape. Still she listened, but heard footsteps neither on the stairs or in the room above. She thought, however, that she again distinguished Bernardine's voice below and went to a grated window that opened upon the court to inquire further. Here she plainly heard his hoarse accents mingling with the blast that swept by, but they were lost again so quickly that their meaning could not be interpreted, and then the light of a torch which seemed to issue from the portal below flashed across the court, and the long shadow of a man who was under the archway appeared upon the pavement. Emily, from the hugeness of this sudden portrait, concluded it to be that of Bernardine, but other deep tones which passed in the wind soon convinced her he was not alone, and that his companion was not a person very liable to pity. When her spirits had overcome the first shock of her situation, she held up the lamp to examine if the chamber afforded a possibility of an escape. It was a spacious room, whose walls wainscoted with rough oak, shewed no casement but the grated one, which Emily had left, and no other door than that by which she had entered. The feeble rays of the lamp, however, did not allow her to see at once its full extent. She perceived no furniture except, indeed, an iron chair fastened in the centre of the chamber, immediately over which, depending on a chain from the ceiling, hung an iron ring. Having gazed upon these for some time with wonder and horror, she next observed iron bars below, made for the purpose of confining the feet, and on the arms of the chair were rings of the same metal. As she continued to survey them, she concluded that they were instruments of torture, and it struck her that some poor wretch had once been fastened in this chair, and had there been starved to death. She was chilled by the thought, but what was her agony when in the next moment it occurred to her that her aunt might have been one of these victims and that she herself might be the next. An acute pain seized her head. She was scarcely able to hold the lamp and looking round for support was seating herself unconsciously in the iron chair itself. But suddenly perceiving where she was, she started from it in horror and sprung towards a remote end of the room. Here again she looked round for a seat to sustain her, and perceived only a dark curtain, which, descending from the ceiling to the floor, was drawn along the whole side of the chamber. Ill as she was, the appearance of this curtain struck her, and she paused to gaze upon it in wonder and apprehension. It seemed to conceal a recess of the chamber. She wished, yet dreaded, to lift it, and to discover what it veiled. Twice she was withheld by a recollection of the terrible spectacle her daring hand had formerly unveiled in an apartment of the castle, till, suddenly conjecturing that it concealed the body of her murdered aunt, she seized it in a fit of desperation and drew it aside. Beyond appeared a corpse, stretched on a kind of low couch, which was crimsoned with human blood, as was the floor beneath. The features deformed by death were ghastly and horrible, and more than one livid wound appeared in the face. 
Emily, bending over the body, gazed for a moment with an eager, frenzied eye. But in the next, the lamp dropped from her hand and she fell senseless at the foot of the couch. When her senses returned, she found herself surrounded by men, among whom was Bernadine, who were lifting her from the floor and then bore her along the chamber. She was sensible of what passed, but the extreme languor of her spirits did not permit her to speak or move or even to feel any distinct fear. They carried her down the staircase by which she had ascended, when having reached the archway they stopped, and one of the men, taking the torch from Bernadine, opened a small door that was cut in the great gate, and as he stepped out upon the road, the light he bore shewed several men on horseback in waiting. Whether it was the freshness of the air that revived Emily, or that the objects she now saw roused the spirit of alarm, she suddenly spoke and made an ineffectual effort to disengage herself from the grasp of the ruffians who held her. Bernadine, meanwhile, called loudly for the torch, while distant voices answered and several persons approached, and in the same instant a light flashed upon the court of the castle. Again he vociferated for the torch, and the men hurried Emily through the gate. At a short distance under the shelter of the castle walls, she perceived the fellow who had taken the light from the porter, holding it to a man, busily employed in altering the saddle of a horse, round which were several horsemen, looking on, whose harsh features received the full glare of the torch, while the broken ground beneath them, the opposite walls, with the tufted shrubs that overhung their summits, and an embattled watchtower above, were reddened with the gleam which, fading gradually away, left the remoter ramparts and the woods below to the obscurity of night. What do you waste time for there? said Bernadine with an oath as he approached the horseman. Dispatch! Dispatch! The saddle will be ready in a minute, replied the man who was buckling it, at whom Bernadine now swore again for his negligence and Emily, calling feebly for help, was hurried towards the horses while the ruffians disputed on which to place her, the one designed for her not being ready. At this moment a cluster of lights issued from the great gates, and she immediately heard the shrill voice of Annette above those of several other persons who advanced. In the same moment she distinguished Montoni and Cavigny, followed by a number of ruffian-faced fellows, to whom she no longer looked with terror but with hope, for at this instant she did not tremble at the thought of any dangers that might await her within the castle, whence so lately and so anxiously she had wished to escape. Those which threatened her from without had engrossed all her apprehensions. A short contest ensued between the parties in which that of Montoni, however, were presently victors, and the horsemen, perceiving that numbers were against them, and being perhaps not very warmly interested in the affair they had undertaken, galloped off, while Bernadine had run far enough to be lost in the darkness, and Emily was led back into the castle. As she repassed the courts, the remembrance of what she had seen in the portal chamber came with all its horror to her mind 
and when soon after she heard the gate close that shut her once more within the castle walls she shuddered for herself and almost forgetting the dangers she had escaped could scarcely think that anything less precious than liberty and peace was to be found beyond them montoni ordered emily to await him in the cedar parlor whither he soon followed and then sternly questioned her on this mysterious affair Though she now viewed him with horror as the murderer of her aunt and scarcely knew what she said in reply to his impatient inquiries her answers and her manner convinced him that she had not taken a voluntary part in the late scheme and he dismissed her upon the appearance of his servants whom he had ordered to attend that he might inquire further into the affair and discover those who had been accomplices in it Emily had been some time in her apartment before the tumult of her mind allowed her to remember several of the past circumstances. Then again the dead form which the curtain in the portal chamber had disclosed came to her fancy and she uttered a groan which terrified Annette the more as Emily forbore to satisfy her curiosity on the subject of it for she feared to trust her with so fatal a secret lest her indiscretion should call down the immediate vengeance of montoni on herself thus compelled to bear within her own mind the whole horror of the secret that oppressed it her reason seemed to totter under the intolerable weight she often fixed a wild and vacant look on annette and when she spoke either did not hear her or answered from the purpose long fits of abstraction succeeded annette spoke repeatedly but her voice seemed not to make any impression on the sense of the long agitated emily who sat fixed and silent except that now and then she heaved a heavy sigh and without tears terrified at her condition annette at length left the room to inform montoni of it who had just dismissed his servants without having made any discoveries on the subject of his enquiry The wild description which this girl now gave of Emily induced him to follow her immediately to the chamber. At the sound of his voice Emily turned her eyes and a gleam of recollection seemed to shoot athwart her mind for she immediately rose from her seat and moved slowly to a remote part of the room. He spoke to her in accents somewhat softened from their usual harshness and she regarded him with a kind of half curious half terrified look and answered only yes to whatever he said her mind still seemed to retain no other impression than that of fear of this disorder annette could give no explanation and montoni having attempted for some time to persuade emily to talk retired after ordering annette to remain with her during the night and to inform him in the morning of her condition when he was gone emily again came forward and asked who it was that had been there to disturb her annette said it was the signor signor montoni emily repeated the name after her several times as if she did not recollect it and then suddenly groaned and relapsed into abstraction with some difficulty annette led her to the bed which emily examined with an eager frenzied eye before she lay down and then pointing turned with shuddering emotion to annette who now more terrified went towards the door that she might bring one of the female servants to pass the night with them 
but Emily observing her going called her by name, and then in the naturally soft and plaintive tone of her voice begged that she too would not forsake her. For since my father died, added she, sighing, everybody forsakes me. Your father, ma'amselle, said Annette, he was dead before you knew me. He was indeed, rejoined Emily, and her tears began to flow. She now wept silently, and long after which, becoming quite calm, she at length sunk to sleep, Annette having had discretion enough not to interrupt her tears. This girl, as affectionate as she was simple, lost in these moments all her former fears of remaining in the chamber, and watched alone by Emily during the whole night. End of Volume 3, Chapter 1 Recording by Red Abras The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 3, Chapter 2 Unfold what worlds or what vast regions Hold the immortal mind that hath forsook her mansion in this fleshly nook, il penseroso. Emily's mind was refreshed by sleep. On waking in the morning, she looked with surprise on Annette, who sat sleeping in a chair beside the bed, and then endeavoured to recollect herself. But the circumstances of the preceding night were swept from her memory, which seemed to retain no trace of what had passed, and she was still gazing with surprise on Annette when the latter awoke. "'Oh, dear mademoiselle, do you know me?' cried she. "'Know you?' "'Certainly,' replied Emily. "'You are Annette. But why are you sitting by me thus?' Oh, you have been very ill, ma'amselle, very ill indeed, and I am sure I thought... This is very strange, said Emily, still trying to recollect the past. But I think I do remember that my fancy has been haunted by frightful dreams. Good God, she added, suddenly starting, surely it was nothing more than a dream. She fixed a terrified look upon Annette who, intending to quiet her, said, Yes, ma'amselle, it was more than a dream, but it's all over now. She is murdered then, said Emily in an inward voice, and shuddering instantaneously. Annette screamed, for being ignorant of the circumstance to which Emily referred, she attributed her manner to a disordered fancy. But when she had explained to what her own speech alluded, Emily, recollecting the attempt that had been made to carry her off, asked if the contriver of it had been discovered. Annette replied that he had not, though he might easily be guessed at, and then told Emily she might thank her for her deliverance, who, endeavouring to command the emotion which the remembrance of her aunt had occasioned, appeared calmly to listen to Annette though, in truth, she heard scarcely a word that was said. And so, ma'amselle, continued the latter, I was determined to be even with Bernardine for refusing to tell me the secret, by finding it out myself, so I watched you, 
on the terrace, and as soon as he had opened the door at the end, I stole out from the castle to try to follow you, for, says I, I am sure no good can be planned, or why all this secrecy? So sure enough, he had not bolted the door after him, and when I opened it, I saw by the glimmer of the torch at the other end of the passage which way you were going. I followed the light at a distance till you came to the walls of the chapel, and there I was, afraid to go further, for I had heard strange things about these walls. But then again, I was afraid to go back, all in darkness by myself. So by the time Bernadine had trimmed the light, I had resolved to follow you, and I did so till you came to the great court, and there I was afraid he would see me, so I stopped at the door again, and watched you across to the gates, and when you was gone up the stairs, I whipped after, there as I stood under the gateway, I heard horses feet without, and several men talking, and I heard them swearing at Bernadine for not bringing you out, and just then he had liked to have caught me, for he came down the stairs again and I had hardly time to get out of his way. But I had heard enough of his secret now, and I determined to be even with him, and to save you too, mademoiselle, for I guessed it would be some new scheme of Count Morano, though he was gone away. I ran into the castle, but I had hard work to find my way through the passage under the chapel. And what is very strange, I quite forgot to look for the ghosts they had told me about, though I would not go into that place again by myself for all the world. Luckily the Signor and Signor Cavigny were up, so we had soon a train at our heels, sufficient to frighten that Bernardine and his rogues all together. Annette ceased to speak, but Emily still appeared to listen. At length she said suddenly, I think I'll go to him myself. Where is he? Annette asked who was meant. Signor Montoni, replied Emily, I would speak with him. And Annette, now remembering the order he had given on the preceding night, respecting her young lady, rose and said she would seek him herself. This honest girl's suspicions of Count Morano were perfectly just. Emily, too, when she thought on the scheme, had attributed it to him. And Montoni, who had not a doubt on this subject also, began to believe that it was by the direction of Morano that poison had formerly been mingled with his wine. The professions of repentance which Morano had made to Emily under the anguish of his wound were sincere at the moment he offered them, but he had mistaken the subject of his sorrow, for while he thought he was condemning the cruelty of his late design, he was lamenting only the state of suffering to which it had reduced him. As these sufferings abated, his former views revived, till, his health being re-established, he again found himself ready for enterprise and difficulty. The porter of the castle, who had served him on a former occasion, willingly accepted a second bribe, and having concerted the means of drawing Emily to the gates, Murano publicly left the hamlet. Whither he had been carried after the affray, and withdrew with his people to another at several miles distance. From thence, on a night agreed upon by Bernardine, who had discovered from the thoughtless prattle of Annette the most probable means of decoying Emily, the Count sent back his servants to the castle while he awaited her arrival at the hamlet with an intention of carrying her immediately to Venice. 
How this, his second scheme was frustrated has already appeared, but the violent and various passions with which this Italian lover was now agitated on his return to that city can only be imagined. Annette having made her report to Montoni of Emily's health and of her request to see him, he replied that she might attend him in the Cedar room in about an hour. It was on the subject that pressed so heavily on her mind that Emily wished to speak to him, yet she did not distinctly know what good purpose this could answer, and sometimes she even recoiled in horror from the expectation of his presence. She wished also to petition, though she scarcely dared to believe that request would be granted, that he would permit her, since her aunt was no more, to return to her native country. As the moment of interview approached, her agitation increased so much that she almost resolved to excuse herself under what could scarcely be called a pretense of illness, and when she considered what could be said, either concerning herself or the fate of her aunt, she was equally hopeless as to the event of her entreaty and terrified as to its effect upon the vengeful spirit of Montoni. Yet to pretend ignorance of her death appeared in some degree to be sharing its criminality and indeed this event was the only ground on which Emily could rest her petition for leaving Udolpho. While her thoughts thus wavered a message was brought importing that Montoni could not see her till the next day and her spirits were then relieved for a moment from an almost intolerable weight of apprehension. Annette said she fancied that cavaliers were going out to the wars again, for the courtyard was filled with horses, and she heard that the rest of the party who went out before were expected at the castle. And I heard one of the soldiers too, added she, say to his comrade that he would warrant they would bring home a rare deal of booty. So thinks I, if the signor can, with a safe conscience, send his people out a robbing, why it is no business of mine. I only wish I was once safe out of this castle, and if it had not been for poor Ludovico's sake, I would have let Count Morano's people run away with us both, for it would have been serving you a good turn, mamsel, as well as myself. Annette might have continued thus talking for hours, for any interruption she would have received from Emily, who was silent, inattentive absorbed in thought, and passed the whole of this day in a kind of solemn tranquillity, such as is often the result of faculties overstrained by suffering. When night returned, Emily recollected the mysterious strains of music that she had lately heard, in which she still felt some degree of interest, and of which she hoped to hear again the soothing sweetness. The influence of superstition now gained on the weakness of her long harassed mind. She looked with enthusiastic expectation to the guardian spirit of her father, and having dismissed Annette for the night, determined to watch alone for their return. It was not yet, however, near the time when she had heard the music on a former night, and anxious to call off her thoughts from distressing subjects, she sat down with one of the few books that she had brought from France, but her mind refusing control, became restless and agitated, and she went often to the casement to listen for a sound. Once she thought she heard a voice, but then, everything without the casement remaining still, she concluded that her fancy had deceived her. 
Thus passed the time till twelve o'clock, soon after which the distant sounds that murmured through the castle ceased and sleep seemed to reign over all. Emily then seated herself at the casement where she was soon recalled from the reverie into which she sunk by very unusual sounds, not of music, but like the low mourning of some person in distress. And she listened. Her heart faltered in terror, and she became convinced that the former sound was more than imaginary. Still, at intervals, she heard a kind of feeble lamentation, and sought to discover whence it came. There were several rooms underneath, adjoining the rampart, which had been long shut up, and as the sound probably rose from one of these, she leaned from the casement to observe whether any light was visible there. The chambers, as far as she could perceive, were quite dark, but at a little distance on the rampart below, she thought she saw something moving. The faint twilight which the stars shed did not enable her to distinguish what it was, but she judged it to be a sentinel on watch, and she removed her light to a remote part of the chamber that she might escape notice during her further observation. The same object still appeared. Presently it advanced along the rampart towards her window, and she then distinguished something like a human form, but the silence with which it moved convinced her it was no sentinel. As it drew near, she hesitated whether to retire. A thrilling curiosity inclined her to stay, but a dread of she scarcely knew what warned her to withdraw. While she paused, the figure came opposite to her casement and was stationary. Everything remained quiet. She had not heard even a footfall, and the solemnity of this silence with the mysterious form she saw subdued her spirits so that she was moving from the casement when, on a sudden, she observed the figure start away and glide down the rampart, after which it was soon lost in the obscurity of night. Emily continued to gaze for some time on the way it had passed, and then retired within her chamber, musing on this strange circumstance, and scarcely doubting that she had witnessed a supernatural appearance. When her spirits recovered composure, she looked round for some other explanation. Remembering what she had heard of the daring enterprises of Montoni, it occurred to her that she had just seen some unhappy person who, having been plundered by his banditti, was brought hither a captive, and that the music she had formerly heard came from him. Yet, if they had plundered him, it still appeared improbable that they should have brought him to the castle, and it was also more consistent with the manners of banditti to murder those they rob than to make them prisoners. But what, more than any other circumstance, contradicted the supposition that it was a prisoner was that it wandered on the terrace without a guard, a consideration which made her dismiss immediately her first surmise. Afterwards, she was inclined to believe that Count Morano had obtained admittance into the castle, but she soon recollected the difficulties and dangers that must have opposed such an enterprise, and that, if he had so far succeeded to come alone and in silence to her casement at midnight, was not the conduct he would have adopted, particularly since the private staircase communicating with her apartment was known to him. Neither would he have uttered the dismal sounds she had heard. 
Another suggestion represented that this might be some person who had designs upon the castle, but the mournful sounds destroyed also that probability. Thus enquiry only perplexed her. Who or what it could be that haunted this lonely hour, complaining in such doleful accents and in such sweet music? For she was still inclined to believe that the former strains and the late appearance were connected. She had no means of ascertaining, and imagination again assumed her empire and roused the mysteries of superstition. She determined, however, to watch on the following night when her doubts might perhaps be cleared up, and she almost resolved to address the figure if it should appear again. End of Volume 3 Chapter 2 Recording by Red Abris June 2008 Recording by Red Abris The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 3 Chapter 3 Part 1 of 2 Such are those thick and gloomy shadows damp oft seen in charnel walls and sepulchres, lingering and sitting by a new-made grave. Milton On the following day, Montoni sent a second excuse to Emily, who was surprised at the circumstance. This is very strange, said she to herself. His conscience tells him the purport of my visit, and he defers it to avoid an explanation. She now almost resolved to throw herself in his way, but terror checked the intention, and this day passed as the preceding one, with Emily, except that a degree of awful expectation concerning the approaching night now somewhat disturbed the dreadful calmness that had pervaded her mind. Towards evening, the second part of the band, which had made the first excursion among the mountains, returned to the castle, where, as they entered the courts, Emily, in her remote chamber, heard their loud shouts and strains of exultation, like the orgies of furies over some horrid sacrifice. She even feared they were about to commit some barbarous deed, a conjecture from which, however, Annette soon relieved her by telling that the people were only exulting over the plunder they had brought with them. This circumstance still further confirmed her in the belief that Montoni had really commenced to be a captain of banditti and meant to retrieve his broken fortunes by the plunder of travellers. Indeed, when she considered all the circumstances of his situation in an armed and almost inaccessible castle, retired far among the recesses of wild and solitary mountains, along whose distant skirts were scattered towns and cities, whither wealthy travellers were continually passing. This appeared to be the situation of all others most suited for the success of schemes of rapine, and she yielded to the strange thought that Montoni was become a captain of robbers. His character also, unprincipled, dauntless, cruel and enterprising, seemed to fit him for the situation. Delighting in the tumult and in the struggles of life, he was equally a stranger to pity and to fear. His very courage was a sort of animal ferocity, 
not the noble impulse of a principle, such as inspirits the mind against the oppressor in the cause of the oppressed, but a constitutional hardiness of nerve that cannot feel and that therefore cannot fear. Emily's supposition, however natural, was in part erroneous, for she was a stranger to the state of this country and to the circumstances under which its frequent wars were partly conducted. The revenues of the many states of Italy being at that time insufficient to the support of standing armies, even during the short periods which the turbulent habits both of the governments and the people permitted to pass in peace, an order of men arose not known in our age and but faintly described in the history of their own. Of the soldiers, disbanded at the end of every war, few returned to the safe but unprofitable occupations than usual in peace. Sometimes they passed into other countries and mingled with armies which still kept the field. Sometimes they formed themselves into bands of robbers and occupied remote fortresses where their desperate character, the weakness of the garments which they offended, and the certainty that they could be recalled to the armies when their presence should be again wanted, prevented them from being much pursued by the civil power, and sometimes they attached themselves to the fortunes of a popular chief by whom they were led into the service of any state which could settle with him the price of their valour. From this latter practice arose their name, Condottieri, a term formidable all over Italy for a period which concluded in the earlier part of the 17th century, but of which it is not so easy to ascertain the commencement. Contests between the smaller states were then, for the most part, affairs of enterprise alone, and the probabilities of success were estimated not from the skill, but from the personal courage of the general and the soldiers. The ability which was necessary to the conduct of tedious operations was little valued. It was enough to know how a party might be led towards their enemies with the greatest secrecy, or conducted from them in the compactest order. The officer was to precipitate himself into a situation where, but for his example, the soldiers might not have ventured, and as the opposed parties knew little of each other's strength, the event of the day was frequently determined by the boldness of the first movements. In such services, the condottieri were eminent, and in these, where plunder always followed success, their characters acquired a mixture of intrepidity and profligacy, which awed even those whom they served. When they were not thus engaged, their chief had usually his own fortress, in which, or in its neighborhood, they enjoyed an irksome rest, and, though their wants were, at one time, partly supplied from the property of the inhabitants, the lavish distribution of their plunder at others prevented them from being obnoxious, and the peasants of such districts gradually shared the character of their warlike visitors. The neighboring governments sometimes professed but seldom endeavoured to suppress these military communities, both because it was difficult to do so and because a disguised protection of them ensured for the service of their wars a body of men who could not otherwise be so cheaply maintained or so perfectly qualified.
The commanders sometimes even relied so far upon this policy of the several powers as to frequent their capitals, and Montoni, having met them in the gaming parties of Venice and Padua, conceived a desire to emulate their characters before his ruined fortunes tempted him to adopt their practices. It was for the arrangement of his present plan of life that the midnight councils were held at his mansion in Venice, and at which Orsino and some other members of the present community then assisted with suggestions, which they had since executed with the wreck of their fortunes. On the return of night, Emily resumed her situation at the casement. There was now a moon, and as it rose over the tufted woods, its yellow light served to show the lonely terrace and the surrounding objects more distinctly than the twilight of the stars had done, and promised Emily to assist her observations should the mysterious form return. On this subject, she again wavered in conjecture, and hesitated whether to speak to the figure to which a strong and almost irresistible interest urged her, but terror at intervals made her reluctant to do so. If this is a person who has designs upon the castle, said she, my curiosity may prove fatal to me, yet the mysterious music and the lamentations I heard must surely have proceeded from him, if so. He cannot be an enemy. She then thought of her unfortunate aunt, and shuddering with grief and horror, the suggestions of imagination seized her mind with all the force of truth, and she believed that the form she had seen was supernatural. She trembled, breathed with difficulty, an icy coldness touched her cheeks, and her fears for a while overcame her judgment. Her resolution now forsook her, and she determined if the figure should appear not to speak to it. Thus the time passed, as she sat at her casement, awed by expectation, and by the gloom and stillness of midnight, for she saw, obscurely in the moonlight, only the mountains and woods, a cluster of towers that formed the west angle of the castle and the terrace below, and heard no sound except now and then the lonely watchword passed by the sentinels on duty, and afterwards the steps of the men who came to relieve guard, and whom she knew at a distance on the rampart by their pikes that glittered in the moonbeam, and then by the few short words in which they hailed their fellows of the night. Emily retired within her chamber while they passed the casement. When she returned to it, all was again quiet. It was now very late. She was wearied with watching, and began to doubt the reality of what she had seen on the preceding night. But she still lingered at the window, for her mind was too perturbed to admit of sleep. The moon shone with a clear luster that afforded her a complete view of the terrace, but she saw only a solitary sentinel pacing at one end of it, and at length, tired with expectation, she withdrew to seek rest. Such, however, was the impression left on her mind by the music and the complaining she had formerly heard, as well as by the figure which she fancied she had seen, that she determined to repeat the watch on the following night. Montoni on the next day took no notice of Emily's appointed visit, but she, more anxious than before to see him, sent Annette to inquire at what hour he would admit her. He mentioned eleven o'clock, and Emily was punctual to the moment, at which she called up all her fortitude to support the shock of his presence and the dreadful recollection it enforced. 
He was with several of his officers in the sadar room on observing whom she passed and her agitation increased while he continued to converse with them apparently not observing her till some of his officers turning round saw Emily and uttered an exclamation she was hastily retiring when Montoni's voice arrested her and in a faltering accent she said i would speak with you signor montoni if you are at leisure these are my friends he replied whatever you would say they may hear emily without replying turned from the rude gaze of the chevaliers and montoni then followed her to the hall whence he led her to a small room of which he shut the door with violence as she looked on his dark countenance she again thought she saw the murderer of her aunt and her mind was so convulsed with horror that she had not power to recall thought enough to explain the purport of her visit and to trust herself with the mention of madam montoni was more than she dared montoni at length impatiently inquired what she had to say i have no time for trifling he added my moments are important emily then told him that she wished to return to france and came to beg that he would permit her to do so but when he looked surprised and inquired for the motive of the request she hesitated became paler than before trembled and had nearly sunk at his feet he observed her emotion with apparent indifference and interrupted the silence by telling her he must be gone emily however recalled her spirits sufficiently to enable her to repeat her request and when montoni absolutely refused it her slumbering mind was roused i can no longer remain here with propriety sir said she and i may be allowed to ask by what right you detain me it is my will that you remain here said montoni laying his hand on the door to go let that suffice you Emily considering that she had no appeal from this will forbore to dispute his right and made a feeble effort to persuade him to be just While my aunt lived sir said she in a tremulous voice my residence here was not improper but now that she is no more i may surely be permitted to depart my stay cannot benefit you sir and will only distress me Who told you that madam montoni was dead said montoni with an inquisitive eye emily hesitated for nobody had told her so and she did not dare to avow that having seen that spectacle in the portal chamber which had compelled her to the belief who told you so he repeated more sternly alas i know it too well replied emily spare me on this terrible subject she sat down on a bench to support herself If you wish to see her said Montoni you may she lies in the east turret he now left the room without awaiting her reply and returned to the sedar chamber where such of the chevaliers as had not before seen Emily began to rally him on the discovery they had made but Montoni did not appear disposed to bear this mirth and they changed the subject having talked with the subtle Orsino on the plan of an excursion which he meditated for a future day his friend advised that they should lie in wait for the enemy 
which Verezzi impetuously opposed, reproached Orsino with want of spirit, and swore that, if Montoni would let him lead on fifty men, he would conquer all that should oppose him. Orsino smiled contemptuously. Montoni smiled too, but he also listened. Verezzi then proceeded with vehement declamation and assertion till he was stopped by an argument of Orsino, which he knew not how to answer better than by invective. His fierce spirit detested the cunning caution of Orsino, whom he constantly opposed and whose inveterate though silent hatred he had long ago incurred. And Montoni was a calm observer of both, whose different qualifications he knew, and how to bend their opposite character to the perfection of his own designs. But Verezzi, in the heart of opposition, now did not scruple to accuse Orsino of cowardice, at which the countenance of the latter, while he made no reply, was overspread with a livid paleness, and Montoni, who watched his lurking eye, saw him put his hand hastily into his bosom. But Verezzi, whose face, glowing with crimson, formed a striking contrast to the complexion of Orsino, remarked not the action, and continued boldly declaiming against cowards to Cavigni, who was slyly laughing at his vehemence, and at the silent mortification of Orsino, when the latter, retiring a few steps behind, drew forth a stiletto to stab his adversary in the back. Montoni arrested his half-extended arm, and with a significant look made him return the poignard into his bosom. Unseen by all except himself, for most of the party were disputing at a distant window, on the situation of a dell where they meant to form an ambuscade. When Verezzi had turned round, the deadly hatred expressed on the features of his opponent, raising for the first time a suspicion of his intention, he laid his hand on his sword, and then, seeming to recollect himself, strode up to Montoni. Signor, said he, with a significant look at Orsino. We are not a band of assassins. If you have business for brave men, employ me on this expedition. You shall have the last drop of my blood. If you have only work for cowards, keep him. Pointing to Orsino. And let me quit Udolfo. Orsino, still more incensed, again drew forth his stiletto and rushed towards Verezzi, who, at the same instant, advanced with his sword, when Montoni and the rest of the party interfered and separated them. This is the conduct of a boy, said Montoni to Verezzi, not of a man. Be more moderate in your speech. Moderation is the virtue of cowards, retorted Verezzi. They are moderate in everything but in fear. I accept your words, said Montoni, turning upon him with a fierce and haughty look, and drawing his sword out of the scabbard. With all my heart, cried Verezzi, though I did not mean them for you. He directed a pass at Montoni, and while they fought, the villain Orsino made another attempt to stab Verezzi, and was again prevented. The combatants were at length separated, and after a very long and violent dispute reconciled. Montoni then left the room with Orsino, whom he detained in private consultation for a considerable time.
End of Volume 3, Chapter 3, Part 1 of 2 Recording by Red Abrus June 2008
or is this but a terrible apparition? She received no answer, and again she snatched up the hand. This is substance, she exclaimed, but it is so cold, cold as marble, she let it fall. Oh, if you really live, speak, said Emily in a voice of desperation, that I may not lose my senses, say you know me. I do live, replied Madame Montoni, but I feel that I am about to die. Emily clasped the hand she held more eagerly and groaned. They were both silent for some moments. Then Emily endeavoured to soothe her and inquired what had reduced her to this present deplorable state. Montoni, when he removed her to the turret under the improbable suspicion of having attempted his life, had ordered the men employed on the occasion to observe a strict secrecy concerning her. To this he was influenced by a double motive. He meant to debar her from the comfort of Emily's visits and to secure an opportunity of privately dispatching her, should any new circumstances occur to confirm the present suggestions of his suspecting mind. His consciousness of the hatred he deserved it was natural enough should at first led him to attribute to her the attempt that had been made upon his life, and though there was no other reason to believe that she was concerned in that atrocious design, his suspicions remained. He continued to confine her in the turret under a strict guard, and without pity or remorse had suffered her to lie forlorn and neglected under a raging fever till it had reduced her to the present state. The track of blood which Emily had seen on the stairs had flowed from the unbound wound of one of the men employed to carry Madame Montoni, and which he had received in the late affray. At night, these men, having contented themselves with securing the door of their prisoner's room, had retired from guard, and then it was that Emily, at the time of her first inquiry, had found the turret so silent and deserted. When she had attempted to open the door of the chamber, her aunt was sleeping, and this occasioned the silence, which had contributed to delude her into a belief that she was no more. Yet, had her terror permitted her to persevere longer in the call, she would probably have awakened Madame Montoni and have been spared much suffering. The spectacle in the portal chamber, which afterwards confirmed Emily's horrible suspicion, was the corpse of a man who had fallen in the affray, and the same which had been borne into the servant's hall, where she took refuge from the tumult. This man had lingered under his wounds for some days, and soon after his death his body had been removed on the couch on which he died, for interment in the vault beneath the chapel through which Emily and Bernadine had passed to the chamber. Emily, after asking Madame Montoni a thousand questions concerning herself, left her and sought Montoni, for the more solemn interest she felt for her aunt made her now, regardless of the resentment her remonstrances might draw upon herself, and of the improbability of his granting what she meant to entreat. Madame Montoni is now dying, sir, said Emily, as soon as she saw him. Your resentment surely will not pursue her to the last moment. Suffer her to be removed from that forlorn room 
to her own apartment and to have necessary comforts administered? Of what service will that be if she is dying? said Montoni with apparent indifference. The service at leave of saving you, sir, from a few of those pangs of conscience you must suffer when you shall be in the same situation, said Emily with imprudent indignation of which Montoni soon made her sensible by commanding her to quit his presence. Then, forgetting her resentment and impressed only by compassion for the piteous state of her aunt, dying without succour, she submitted to humble herself to Montoni and to adopt every persuasive means that might induce him to relent towards his wife. For a considerable time he was proof against all she said and all she looked, but at length the divinity of pity beaming in Emily's eyes seemed to touch his heart. He turned away, ashamed of his better feelings, half sullen and half relenting, but finally consented that his wife should be removed to her own apartment, and that Emily should attend her. Dreading equally that this relief might arrive too late, and that Montoni might retract his concession, Emily scarcely stayed to thank him for it, but assisted by Annette, she quickly prepared Madame Montoni's bed, and they carried her a cordial that might enable her feeble frame to sustain the fatigue of a removal. Madame was scarcely arrived in her own apartment when an order was given by her husband that she should remain in the turret, but Emily, thankfully that she had made such dispatch, hastened to inform him of it, as well as that a second removal would instantly prove fatal, and he suffered his wife to continue where she was. During this day, Emily never left Madame Montoni except to prepare such little nourishing things as she judged necessary to sustain her, and which Madame Montoni received with quiet acquiescence, though she seemed sensible that they could not save her from approaching dissolution, and scarcely appeared to wish for life. Emily, meanwhile, watched over her with the most tender solicitude. No longer seeing her imperious aunt in the poor object before her, but the sister of her late beloved father, in a situation that called for all her compassion and kindness. When night came, she determined to sit up with her aunt, but this the latter positively forbade, commanding her to retire to rest, and Annette alone to remain in her chamber. Rest was indeed necessary to Emily, whose spirits and frame were equally varied by the occurrences and exertions of the day but she would not leave Madame Montoni till after the turn of midnight, a period then thought so critical by the physicians. Soon after twelve, having enjoined Annette to be wakeful and to call her should any change appear for the worse, Emily sorrowfully bade Madame Montoni good night and withdrew to her chamber. Her spirits were more than usually depressed by the piteous condition of her aunt, whose recovery she scarcely dared to expect. To her own misfortunes she saw no period. Enclosed as she was in a remote castle beyond the reach of any friends, had she possessed such, and beyond the pity even of strangers, while she knew herself to be in the power of a man capable of any action which his interest or his ambition might suggest. Occupied by melancholy reflections and by anticipations as sad, she did not retire immediately to rest, but leaned thoughtfully on her open casement. 
The scene before her of woods and mountains reposing in the moonlight formed a regretted contrast with the state of her mind. But the lonely murmur of these woods and the view of the sleeping landscape gradually soothed her emotions and softened her to tears. She continued to weep for some time, lost to everything but to a gentle sense of her misfortunes. When she at length took the handkerchief from her eyes, she perceived before her, on the terrace below, the figure she had formerly observed, which stood fixed and silent, immediately opposite to her casement. On perceiving it, she started back, and terror for some time overcame curiosity. At length she turned to the casement and still the figure was before it, which she now compelled herself to observe, but was utterly unable to speak as she had formerly intended. The moon shone with a clear light and it was perhaps the agitation of her mind that prevented her distinguishing with any degree of accuracy the form before her. It was still stationary and she began to doubt whether it was really animated. Her scattered thoughts were now so far returned as to remind her that her light exposed her to dangerous observation and she was stepping back to remove it when she perceived the figure move and then wave what seemed to be its arm as if to beckon her and while she gazed fixed in fear it repeated the action. She now attempted to speak but the words died on her lips and she went from the casement to remove her light as she was doing which she heard from without a faint groan. Listening but not daring to return she presently heard it repeated. Good God! What can this mean? said she. Again she listened but the sound came no more and after a long interval of silence she recovered courage enough to go to the casement when she again saw the same appearance. It beckoned again and again uttered a low sound. That groan was surely human, said she. I will speak. Who is it, cried Emily in a faint voice, that wanders at this late hour? The figure raised its head but suddenly started away and glided down the terrace. She watched it for a long while, passing swiftly in the moonlight, but heard no footstep, till a sentinel from the other extremity of the rampart walked slowly along. The man stopped under her window and, looking up, called her by name. She was retiring precipitately, but a second summons inducing her to reply. The soldier then respectfully asked if she had seen anything pass. On her answering that she had, he said no more, but walked away down the terrace. Emily following him with her eyes till he was lost in the distance, but as he was on guard, she knew he could not go beyond the rampart, and therefore resolved to await his return. Soon after, his voice was heard at a distance, calling loudly, and then a voice still more distant answered, and in the next moment the watchword was given and passed along the terrace. As the soldiers moved hastily under the casement, she called to inquire what had happened, but they passed without regarding her. Emily's thoughts returning to the figure she had seen. It cannot be a person who has designs upon the castle, said she. Such an one would conduct himself very differently. 
He would not venture where sentinels were on watch, nor fix himself opposite to a window where he perceived he must be observed, much less would he become or utter a sound of complaint. Yes, it cannot be a prisoner, for how could he obtain the opportunity to wander thus? If she had been subject to vanity, she might have supposed this figure to be some inhabitant of the castle who wandered under her casement in the hope of seeing her and of being allowed to declare his admiration. But this opinion never occurred to Emily, and if it had, she would have dismissed it as improbable on considering that when the opportunity of speaking had occurred, it had been suffered to pass in silence, and that, even at that moment in which she had spoken, the form had abruptly quitted the place. While she mused, two sentinels walked up the rampart in earnest conversation, of which she caught a few words, and learned from these that one of their comrades had fallen down senseless. Soon after, three other soldiers appeared slowly advancing from the bottom of the terrace, but she heard only a low voice that came at intervals. As they drew near, she perceived this to be the voice of him who walked in the middle, apparently supported by his comrades, and she again called to them, inquiring what had happened. At the sound of her voice, they stopped and looked up while she repeated her question and was told that Roberto, their fellow of the watch, had been seized with a fit and that his cry as he fell had caused a false alarm. Is he subject to fits? said Emily. Yes, Signora, replied Roberto. But if I had not, what I saw was enough to have frightened the Pope himself. What was it? inquired Emily, trembling. I cannot tell what it was, lady, or what I saw, or how it vanished, replied the soldier, who seemed to shudder at the recollection. Was it the person whom you followed down the rampart that has occasioned you this alarm? said Emily, endeavouring to conceal her own. Person? exclaimed the man. It was the devil, and this is not the first time I have seen him. Nor will it be the last, observed one of his comrades, laughing. No, no, I warrant not, said another. Well, rejoined Robert, you may be as merry now as you please. You was none so jocose the other night, Sebastian, when you was on watch with Launcelot. Launcelot need not talk of that, replied Sebastian. Let him remember how he stood trembling and unable to give the word till the man was gone. If the man had not come so silently upon us, I would have seized him and soon made him tell who he was. What man? inquired Emily. It was no man, lady, said Launcelot, who stood by, but the devil himself, as my comrade says. What man, who does not live in the castle, could get within the walls at midnight? Why, I might just as well pretend to march to Venice and get among all the senators when they are counselling, and I warrant I should have more chance of getting out again, alive, than any fellow that we should catch within the gates after dark. So I think I have proved plainly enough that this can be nobody that lives out of the castle, and now I will prove that it can be nobody that lives in the castle. For, if he did, why should he be afraid to be seen? So after this, I hope, nobody will pretend to tell me it was anybody. No, I say again, 
by Holy Pope. It was the devil. And Sebastian there knows this is not the first time we have seen him. When did you see the figure then before? said Emily half smiling, who, though she thought the conversation somewhat too much, felt an interest which would not permit her to conclude it. About a week ago, lady, said Sebastian, taking up the story. And where? On the rampart, lady, higher up. Did you pursue it that it fled? No, Signora, Lancelot and I were on watch together. And everything was so still, you might have heard a mouse stir, when suddenly Lancelot says, Sebastian, do you see nothing? I turned my head a little to the left, as it might be thus. No, says I. Hush, said Lancelot. Look yonder, just by the last cannon on the rampart. I looked, and then thought I did see something move. But there being no light, but what the stars gave, I could not be certain. We stood quite silent to watch it, and presently saw something pass along the castle wall just opposite to us. Why did you not seize it then? cried a soldier, who had scarcely spoken till now. Hey, why did you not seize it? said Robert. You should have been there to have done that, replied Sebastian. You would have been bold enough to have taken it by the throat though it had been the devil himself. We could not take such a liberty, perhaps, because we are not so well acquainted with him as you are. But as I was saying, it stole by us so quickly that we had no time to get rid of our surprise before it was gone. Then we knew it was in vain to follow. We kept constant watch all that night, but we saw it no more. Next morning we told some of our comrades, who were on duty on other parts of the ramparts, what we had seen, but they had seen nothing and laughed at us. And it was not till tonight that the same figure walked again. Where did you lose it, friend? said Emily to Roboto. When I left you, lady, replied the man, you might see me go down the rampart, but it was not till I reached the east terrace that I saw anything. Then, the moon shining bright, I saw something like a shadow flitting before me, as it were at some distance. I stopped when I turned the corner of the east tower, where I had seen this figure not a moment before, but it was gone. As I stood, looking through the old arch, which leads to the east rampart, and where I am sure it had passed, I heard all of a sudden such a sound. It was not like a groan or a cry or a shout or anything I have ever heard in my life. I heard it only once, and that was enough for me, for I know nothing that happened after, till I found my comrades here about me. Come, said Sebastian, let us go to our posts. The moon is setting. Good night, lady. Eh, let us go, rejoined Roberto. Good night, lady. Good night, the Holy Mother guard you, said Emily, as she closed her casement and retired to reflect upon the strange circumstance that had just occurred, connecting which with what had happened on former nights, she endeavoured to derive from the whole something more positive than conjecture. But her imagination was inflamed, while her judgment was not enlightened and the terrors of superstition again pervaded her mind.
end of volume 3 chapter 3 part 2 of 2 recording by red abris june 2008
for heavy vapor surrounded it, and, often rolling over the disk, left the scene below in total darkness. It was in one of these moments of obscurity that she observed a small and lambent flame moving at some distance on the terrace. While she gazed, it disappeared, and the moon again emerging from the lurid and heavy thunderclouds, she turned her attention to the heavens, where the vivid lightnings darted from cloud to cloud and flashed silently on the woods below. She loved to catch, in the momentary gleam, the gloomy landscape. Sometimes a cloud opened its light upon a distant mountain, and while the sudden splendor illumined all its recesses of rock and wood, the rest of the scene remained in deep shadow. At others, partial features of the castle were revealed by the glimpse. The antient arch leading to the east rampart, the turret above, or the fortifications beyond. And then, perhaps, the whole edifice with all its towers, its dark, massy walls and pointed casements would appear and vanish in an instant. Emily, looking again upon the rampart, perceived the flame she had seen before. It moved onward, and soon after she thought she heard a footstep. The light appeared and disappeared frequently, while as she watched, it glided under her casements, and at the same instant she was certain that a footstep passed, but the darkness did not permit her to distinguish any object except the flame. It moved away, and then by a gleam of lightning she perceived some person on the terrace. All the anxieties of the preceding night returned. This person advanced, and the playing flame alternately appeared and vanished. Emily wished to speak to end her doubts whether this figure were human or supernatural, but her courage failed as often as she attempted utterance, till the light moved again under the casement, and she faintly demanded who passed. A friend, replied a voice. What friend? said Emily, somewhat encouraged. Who are you, and what is that light you carry? I am Antonio. One of the Signor's soldiers, replied the voice. And what is that tapering light you bear, said Emily? See how it darts upwards and now it vanishes? This light, lady, said the soldier, has appeared tonight as you see it, on the point of my lance, ever since I have been on watch. But what it means, I cannot tell. This is very strange, said Emily. My fellow guard, continued the man, has the same flame on his arms. He says he has sometimes seen it before. I never did. I am but lately come to the castle, for I have not been long a soldier. How does your comrade account for it? said Emily. He says it is an omen, lady, and bodes no good. And what harm can it bode? rejoined Emily. He knows not so much as that, lady. Whether Emily was alarmed by this omen or not, she certainly was relieved from much terror by discovering this man to be only a soldier on duty, and it immediately occurred to her that it might be he who had occasioned so much alarm on the preceding night. There were, however, some circumstances that still required explanation. As far as she could judge by the faint moonlight that had assisted her observation, the figure she had seen did not resemble this man either in shape or size. Besides, she was certain it had carried no arms. The silence of its steps, if steps it had, the moaning sounds too which it had uttered, and its strange disappearance, were circumstances of mysterious import that did not apply with probability to a soldier engaged in the duty of his guard. 
She now inquired of the sentinel whether he had seen any person beside his fellow watch, walking on the terrace about midnight, and then briefly related what she had herself observed. I was not on guard that night, lady, replied the man, but I heard of what happened. There are amongst us who believe strange things. Strange stories, too, have long been told of this castle, but it is no business of mine to repeat them. And for my part, I have no reason to complain. Our chief does nobly by us. I commend your prudence, said Emily. Good night, and accept this from me, she added, throwing him a small piece of coin, and then closing the casement to put an end to the discourse. When he was gone, she opened it again, listened with a gloomy pleasure to the distant thunder that began to murmur along the mountains, and watched the arrowy lightnings which broke over the remoter scene. The pealing thunder rolled onward, and then, reverbed by the mountains, other thunder seemed to answer from the opposite horizon, while the accumulating clouds, entirely concealing the moon, assumed a red sulfurous tinge that foretold a violent storm. Emily remained at her casement till the vivid lightning that now every instant revealed the wide horizon and the landscape below made it no longer safe to do so, and she went to her couch, but unable to compose her mind to sleep, still listened in silent awe to the tremendous sounds that seemed to shake the castle to its foundation. She had continued thus for a considerable time, when, amidst the uproar of the storm, she thought she heard a voice, and raising herself to listen, saw the chamber door open and Annette enter with a countenance of wild affright. She is dying, Manswell, my lady is dying, said she. Emily started up and ran to Madame Montoni's room. When she entered, her aunt appeared to have fainted, for she was quite still and insensible. And Emily, with a strength of mind that refused to yield to grief while any duty required her activity, applied every means that seemed likely to restore her. But the last struggle was over. She was gone forever. When Emily perceived that all her efforts were ineffectual, she interrogated the terrified Annette, and learned that Madame Montoni had fallen into a doze soon after Emily's departure, in which she had continued until a few minutes before her death. I wondered, Mamswell, said Annette, what was the reason my lady did not seem frightened at the thunder when I was so terrified, and I went often to the bed to speak to her, but she appeared to be asleep, till presently I heard a strange noise, and on going to her, saw she was dying. Emily, at this recital, shed tears. She had no doubt but that the violent change in the air which the tempest produced had affected this fatal one on the exhausted frame of Madame Montoni. After some deliberation, she determined that Montoni should not be informed of this event till the morning, for she considered that he might, perhaps, utter some inhuman expressions, such as in the present temper of her spirits she could not bear. With Annette alone, therefore, whom she encouraged by her own example, she performed some of the last solemn offices for the dead, and compelled herself to watch during the night by the body of her deceased aunt. During this solemn period, rendered more awful by the tremendous storm that shook the air, she frequently addressed herself to heaven for support and protection, and her pious prayers, we may believe, were accepted of the God that giveth comfort. End of Volume 3, Chapter 4